Have you ever considered that from a heavenly perspective, from, from God's point of view, we come to know Him? It, it is God by His Holy Spirit who makes Himself known to us as He discloses Himself through the witness of Christian friends and family members and through the reading and studying of His Word. Do, do you know God? Has He made Himself known to you? In his classic and wonderful book, Knowing God, Dr. J.I. Packer makes a careful and important distinction, I think, between knowing God and knowing about God. There's a vital and eternal difference between knowing God and knowing about God. Do you know God? Do you know His Son, Jesus Christ? Have you discovered Him? Has He disclosed Himself to you? This morning, Lord willing, as we conclude our study of Luke chapter 22, uh, and in this chapter, Jesus discloses Himself to those who are before Him. In other words, He makes Himself known to them. He reveals who He is. Now, as you know, in your own kind of personal relationships, when your spouse or a friend or a coworker makes themselves known to you, they, they tell you about themselves, what you do with that information, uh, with that revelation, is important. In fact, what you do with that information really reveals whether or not you know them or you know about them. It's my prayer this morning that as we consider Jesus' gracious self-disclosure of His person, that we would come to know Him and not know merely about Him, but that we would know Him personally as our own Savior and Lord. It's my prayer that we recognize that He is who He says He is, that He is the Christ, our Savior from sin and the Son of the living God. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. We're going to begin our study this morning with verse 39. If you're new to looking at a Bible, the, the chapters in the Bible are the larger numbers there in the text, and the, the verses are the smaller numbers there in the print. Uh, I believe if you're using one of the Bibles provided, Luke 22 verse 39 is found on page 882. 882. And while we're turning in our Bibles, let's remember where we are in our study in the Gospel of Luke. Um, in, in short, we're, we're near the end. Uh, last week, we studied the day before Jesus' death on the cross. On that day, we saw Jesus celebrate the Passover with His disciples and explain to them that He was the Passover Lamb who would be slain so that sinners might be forgiven. At that Last Supper, Jesus predicted that He would be betrayed and, and then his, his disciples, they squabbled over who would be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. It was a strange day, and Jesus only compounded the curiosity of the day by predicting that Peter, kind of the most committed disciple among them, that Peter would deny Jesus. Our study last week concluded with Jesus assuring his disciples that he would fulfill the scriptures Specifically, Isaiah chapter 53, where it was said that God's Messiah would suffer and be numbered with the transgressors. In Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 71, the verses that we're looking at together this morning, day turns to night and night turns to day. In this passage, Jesus' last day before his death on the cross becomes his last night. Then the darkness dissipates, morning dawns. And the council that holds Jesus' life in their hands determines that he should die. Our passage begins with Jesus pleading with God the Father. And it ends with Jesus revealing that he is God's Son. Luke's Gospel has been driving toward this climactic declaration and disclosure from Jesus. In our passage, we learn five things about Jesus and for those studious note-takers here, uh, this is the outline for this morning's sermon. Five things form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Five things we learn about Jesus. First, Jesus is distressed. Jesus is delivered. Jesus is denied. Jesus is derided. And Jesus is discovered. 
And I doubt that you've caught all five of those descriptions, but please do not despair. I'll dispense each distinct point as we make our way through the text. Well, let's begin with our first point. Jesus is distressed. Jesus is distressed. Read Luke 22, verses 39 to 46 with me. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray, that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Well, Jesus has concluded the Passover meal with his disciples and they begin to make their way outside the city to the Mount of Olives. Luke tells us in verse 39 that this was Jesus' normal practice during his stay in Jerusalem. These verses are, are deeply concerned with prayer. I wonder if you notice that. Just consider kind of the beginning and the end of these verses. At the top of these verses, there in verse 40, Jesus urges his disciples to pray that they may not enter into temptation. And then if you skip down kind of toward the end, you skip down to the tail, you'll notice there in verse 46 that Jesus once again commands his disciples to pray that they may not enter into temptation. And ask yourself, what, what's happening in the middle of these verses, these two commands from Jesus? Well, Jesus gives himself to prayer. You see that verse 41, he knelt down and prayed. Being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. Verse 44, verse 45, he rose from prayer. Do You see here the Savior prayed. And those who call themselves followers of Jesus ought to follow in his way. We too should pray. Jesus even commands his disciples to pray. He understands that they need to pray as a guard against temptation. This is what Jesus taught his disciples back in Luke chapter 11, verse 4, when he taught them to pray, and lead us not into temptation. And the word that is, is here translated temptation carries with this, this sense of severe testing, a kind of pressure which could lead to stumbling and sinning. I wonder, Christian, have you prayed against temptation? Have you prayed for strength through temptation? Have you prayed for God to lead you away from temptation? If you haven't, does that say something about your love of sin? Is that suggestive that we may actually love our sin and want to hold on to it? Friends, our hearts are dark. They are as dark as this night that Jesus is facing in the Garden of Gethsemane. If we underestimate our love for sin, I fear we underestimate our need to pray. Jesus gives his disciples a command here, and it is a command that I think that we desperately need to obey. For the sake of your soul, pray. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, one of the things that is intriguing about these verses, verses 39 to 46, is that they do not present the disciples as distressed. Jesus has given them a serious warning about temptation and he has given them a defense against it in prayer. And they are so untroubled by Jesus' warning that they go to sleep. They have clearly forgotten Jesus' words that he is going to be betrayed. They have forgotten that he has told them in the Passover meal that he was going to be slain as the Passover lamb and so pour out his blood. The disciples are not distressed, but Jesus is, isn't he? I mean, he has to be strengthened by an angel. You see that in verse 43? He's sweating profusely, verse 44. And this on a night that the weather is cold enough for a fire. We'll see that in verse 55. 
Jesus is in agony. He is distressed. He is overwhelmed. Let us not fail to recognize Jesus' humanity here. He was, he is fully God. And he is also fully man. He is distressed as any man would be. Perhaps you have woken up in the middle of the night, sweating profusely because your worst fears have become your nightmares. Well, friends, this is no nightmare for Jesus. He is distressed because he is facing a terrible reality. And what is that terrible reality? What is the source of Jesus' distress? Well, the answer to that question is in Jesus' prayer. Read Jesus' prayer in verse 42 again. Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What is Jesus talking about here? What is this cup that he's referring to? Well, in short, Jesus is referring to the cup of God's wrath that is spoken about in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets and Psalms. Uh, We read about the cup of God's wrath in Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Zechariah. Just listen to this passage From Jeremiah 25, verses 15 to 17. This is Jeremiah 25, verses 15 to 17. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse, as at this day. What Jesus is teaching us here is that he will drink the cup of God's wrath on behalf of the nations. He will bear the curse for them. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Similarly, consider what we read in in the Psalms. In Psalm 75, verse 8, we read, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. See, Jesus is distressed because He is about to stand in the place of His sinful people and drink the cup of the Father's eternal wrath against our sin. Do you see now why God the Father sent an angel to strengthen him? God the Father sent an angel from heaven to strengthen Jesus because his answer to Jesus' question was no. I am not willing. Jesus, I think, so honored the Father with those words, if you are willing. Do you see how he is entrusting himself to his Father, to our Father, and and holding his request out with an open hand. He's not here making a demand. It was not the Father's will to take the cup from Jesus. Isaiah 53 tells us what the Father's will was. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, we read, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. Now perhaps you think to yourself, but but Jesus was innocent. That's right. He was the sinless and spotless Passover lamb. He was innocent. He had to be innocent because we are guilty. In the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, not in ourselves, in him, in Jesus Christ, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Or consider the words of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by His wounds, not by our wounds. By His wounds, you have been healed. See, Jesus is distressed because He is staring into the cup of God the Father's wrath against sin, against your sin and against my sin. 
Christian, you must, you must look on your Savior in this garden, in his distress. Look on him and don't look away. Look on him as he stares into the cup of wrath against your, against your sin. And hear him say, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, you see here, he is not eager to bear God's wrath against your sin and my sin. But he is also not unwilling. He submits his will to the Father. He gives his will to the Father's will. And this should also remind us of the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven. See, Jesus lived what he taught and prayed. And he did this for, for us and for our salvation. It strikes me that this is the first and most fundamental step of the Christian life. If we are to do God's will, we must discard our own. Our wills, because we are filled with sin, are so often at odds with God's will. Do you know what God's will is for you? Ultimately, God's will is for God's people to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 29. And that begins by surrendering and submitting our hearts and lives to God just as Jesus did. And let us also learn this about prayer. Prayer is not so much about asking God to give into our will as much as it is sharing our will, but finally submitting to His. Would it be okay if God said no? Would it be okay if God did not answer your prayer in the way that you wanted? Are you willing to trust that He knows best and only gives the best? Are you willing to trust that He knows everything that could ever be known? And that we, we know next to nothing of everything that could be known. As we pray, let us learn to pray. Not my will, but yours be done. We've seen Jesus distressed in a dark garden. And now let's turn to Luke 22, verses 47 to 54. We see Jesus delivered up to death by one of his own disciples. This is the second point that we want to consider together. Jesus is delivered. Uh, let's read verses 47 to 54. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around Around him saw what would follow. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple... You did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. While Jesus was urging, commanding even, his disciples to pray, that they may not enter into temptation, Judas and the crowd enter the garden. Notice how Judas is characterized. Verse 47, the man called Judas. There's just such distance placed between Judas and Jesus. And did you notice that he's leading this crowd? Judas is no longer a follower. He's a leader. He's no longer a disciple. He's a defector. 
He hands Jesus over to the Jewish religious authorities under the cover of darkness. And it was dark in more ways than one. You recall from our study last week that in Luke chapter 22, verse 3, we're told that Satan had entered into Judas. Satan struck in the first garden. And here he is endeavoring to strike again. Judas is simple, his kiss is a simple and common greeting in the Eastern world. It identified Jesus to the crowd and to the guard. They wanted to make sure they got the right man. And who better than Judas who had traveled with Jesus for some three years to do it. This scene moves at a lightning fast pace. One minute Judas is approaching. The next someone is asking, shall we strike with a sword? And before an answer can even be delivered, blood is drawn. A servant of the high priest loses his ear in this commotion. We learn from John's gospel that the servant's name was Malchus and that it was Peter who swung the sword. Friends, please take careful note here. This scene is, is spinning wildly out of control. Jesus' disciples, they only have two swords with them. We learned that last week in verse 38 of chapter 22. Jesus and his disciples have been met, as we're told in verse uh, Here at the end, he was met by a crowd there in verse 52. He's met by a crowd with clubs and swords. Jesus and and his disciples are about to be slaughtered in a sword fight. But notice, who brings everything under control? It's Jesus. He has always been the one to bring chaos under control in this gospel. Just think back to Luke chapter 8. And they chaotic winds and waves. He brought calm upon the sea with a mere word. And I have no doubt that in this dark garden, with that sudden commotion, that if Jesus really wanted to escape and slip into the darkness, he could have done so. Judas came to deliver Jesus, but in the end it is really Jesus who delivers himself to the authorities. He's the one who says no more of this. He brings order to the chaos, and apparently... He is allowed so much freedom and control that he can touch the servant's ear and heal him. Is not Jesus full of mercy? Do you realize that Peter should have been taken hold of and charged for his crime? But by this healing, what evidence stood against him? What were the witnesses going to say? Mr. High Priest, I saw his ear cut off. What was he going to say? But he has two ears. See, Peter is free from any accusation. Jesus saved Peter from judgment through this healing and thereby preserving him for preaching in the future. Jesus also made this servant Malchus whole. Jesus left in Malchus's life an unforgettable sign of his healing power that he would bear every day that he lived. This may have been the hour for darkness, But Jesus is still clearly the light shining in the darkness. He delivers sinners from judgment and he makes them whole again. He he may have been delivered over to the authorities who would eventually put him to death. But he has come to deliver himself so that he might save us from judgment and make us whole. And if I may, I'd like to usher in a word of application concerning the sword. Uh, Let let us be absolutely clear. Jesus' kingdom will not be secured with the sword. It will not be secured with the sword of the state. Uh, That weapon is far too small and frankly weak for kingdom work. Jesus has ordained to use a much more powerful sword. See, Jesus' kingdom will be secured because he went under the sword of God's wrath. We as believers and followers of Jesus Christ don't look to lay hold of the sword of the state in order to secure Christ's kingdom on earth? No, we lay hold of the sword of God's word and we wield it as a weapon which slays the forces of darkness when God attends it by the power of his Holy Spirit. Do we really believe in the power of God's word? Parent, brothers and sisters who are parents here, will you speak God's word to your children? Brothers and sisters, in your workplaces, speak God's word. It's powerful and mighty. Do do we really believe that faith comes by hearing? As Paul says in Romans 10, 17. Let us learn to 
speak God's word, to teach God's word, to preach God's word, to, to live God's word. As we know from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the sword that our God has designed for kingdom work. For his work in his world. Well, after being delivered, Jesus is denied. Uh, this is what we see in Luke chapter 22, verses 54 to 62. Jesus is denied. Begin reading there in verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly. This man also was with them, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, You will deny me three times. And he went out. And wept bitterly. These verses recount Jesus being led away under guard with Peter following at a distance. Once the situation settles around the fire, Peter denies his connection to Jesus only to remember and regret his actions. I think we're tempted to give Peter a hard time here, but frankly, he really is the most courageous disciple. He may have followed at a distance, but at least he followed. I mentioned this last week, uh, but I think it is worthwhile mentioning again. This scene leads me to believe that we have accurate and authentic accounts of what really transpired in the life of Jesus and his disciples. If you're trying to fabricate a religion about following Jesus, you wouldn't have one of the church's first leaders denying Jesus like this. No, the, the gospel writers were, were honest, even when it, when it didn't make Jesus' first followers look good. What is interesting is that these pictures of the disciples, they really look the worst around the events of the cross and resurrection. I think we really do have faithful and accurate accounts. We see Peter here. He's at this fire and courtyard hoping to hear word of how Jesus is proceeding. And I don't know about you, but, but, but as this scene unfolds, I imagine Peter kind of being physically present at that fire in the courtyard, but, but mentally his mind is in the courtroom with Jesus. I'm sure this has happened to you before. You're, you're there, but your mind's really kind of drifting somewhere else. Don't you imagine him sitting there with others, but his eyes are kind of always peering into the, the high priest's house, looking for some indication, hoping to see how things are going. After all, how else is it that we get verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter? Now, we need to understand something about the, the chronology of the Gospels at this point. Technically speaking, uh, Jesus, he undergoes multiple trials. And if you were to look at all four Gospels kind of side by side, you could, you could work, out, work this out. As Peter is outside of the high priest's house, Jesus is undergoing a trial. Now, this wasn't a legitimate or legal trial. According to Jewish law, trials had to occur at night. But frankly, all they're doing under the cover of darkness is preparing for the legal trial, which will take place uh, in the morning. The goal is to get the case ready and closed so that they can kind of have a, simply have a, a rubber stamp decision. Uh, they're going to rubber stamp this decision in the morning. This decision that note they make in the dark of night. They want to be done with Jesus as quickly as possible. We'll look at that rubber stamp trial shortly. But for now, we also need to see that Peter is actually undergoing a kind of trial, isn't he? With these questions. 
Peter, we see there in verses 57, 58, and 60, is placed on the witness stand, and there he denies Jesus, just as Jesus had predicted in verse 34 of this chapter. But take a closer look. Look at verse 56. Did you notice that curious little phrase, as he sat in the light? That's interesting, isn't it? Servant girl is staring at Peter, looking intently at him, and the fire brings him into the light physically. But Peter does not come into the light and expose himself as a follower of Jesus. For now he remains in the shadows. He remains in the shadows again there in verse 58 when a man recognizes him. And finally there is the clearest recognition of Peter and the most forceful denial there of Jesus in verses 59 and 60. In Mark and, and Matthew's gospel, I think uh, we read that Peter swore on an oath and he calls down curses. Now consider verse 60 again, where, this, where the rooster crows. Consider especially those words while he was still speaking. When was the last time we heard those words? Look back up to verse 47. We last heard those words while he was still speaking when Judas entered the scene to betray Jesus. See, with his denials, Peter had betrayed Jesus. And it is at this moment that the rooster crows. It is at that moment that Peter remembers Jesus' words from Luke twenty-two thirty-two. It is at that moment that Jesus and Peter's eyes connect. And what do you think Jesus intended to communicate with his eyes, with that look? You know how you can communicate something with people when you look at them. What, what do you think Jesus' eyes said? Do, you, do you, think it, you think it was, Peter, how could you? Or do you think it was, I told you so, Peter? I don't think so. Could that Luke have communicated, Peter, I forgive you. Peter, I'm going to give my life for you. Peter, turn from this sin and go and strengthen your brothers, as I told you. They, they need you. Is it not God's kindness that leads us to repentance? Peter, we see here, he is so ashamed of his sin. He, he left, he went out, he wept bitterly. Christian, is this how you respond to your sin? Is this how you respond to your Christ-denying sin? Maybe you balk at that. What, what do you mean my Christ-denying sin? Maybe... You have denied being a disciple of Jesus verbally. But I suspect that our denial of Jesus has been far more subtle. Don't we deny that Jesus is Lord whenever we sin? Whenever we take that throne? Whenever we say, my will, not yours, be done? Isn't that a form of denial? You are not God, you will not rule? Christian, do you ever... You grieve over your sin. Or, or do you kind of shrug your shoulders over your sin? Yeah, we all make mistakes. Everyone errs. But sin is not a mistake. It is not an error. It is an act of rebellion against the living Lord. Do we recognize how hideous and monstrous our sin is. Consider John Bunyan's description of sin. Sin is the dare of God's justice, the abuse of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. That is what our sin is. Do you ever say with the Apostle Paul, in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Only Jesus. If anyone was ever astounded by the love, mercy, and forgiveness of Jesus, it had to be Peter. Don't you think he felt undeserving of Jesus' mercy and forgiveness? Don't you feel that way? about your own soul? Jesus, how could you forgive a denier and a traitor like me? 
How, how could you forgive a wretch like me? May we never cease to be amazed by the love and mercy and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has been distressed, delivered and denied. And we now turn to see that the sinless Son of God is derided. That's our next point. Jesus is derided. Read Luke 22 verses 63 to 65 now. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now I do not wish to linger here long. I, I only hope to point out a few sad ironies and to affirm that the scripture passage that we read earlier, Psalm 109, uh, is fulfilled in what we see here. Jesus was badly treated. Jesus predicted that this would happen to him. He himself in his life and ministry predicted this would happen. He knew that it was coming. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus told his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 33, Jesus said this, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. See, Jesus actually was a true prophet. He predicted his derision. And so did the Old Testament scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, the Messianic servant of God says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Just a few chapters later in Isaiah 53, verse 3, we read, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. See, when those men put that blindfold on Jesus and said, prophesy, they weren't hiding his face. They were hiding their faces. They were unwittingly fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. And they were unwillingly fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. He didn't need to prophesy. He had already done it. This scene of derision, of Jesus being derided, proves he was who he said he was. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is the truth that is discovered and disclosed in the final scene of Luke 22. Would you turn with me and consider our fifth and final point? Jesus is discovered. Read Luke 22, verses 66 to 71. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. In this scene, we see that night has turned to day. And I, I think that is not only a historical fact, but it's also a significant shift in the mood of the narrative. Now everything is going to be brought into the light. And Jesus is going to reveal exactly what he came to do. Jesus is interrogated before the Jewish religious leaders. They discover that Jesus really does believe that he is the Christ. You see that in verse 67. He's the messianic son of man, verse 69. And the son of God, verse 70. You notice these terms about Jesus piling up. Luke is revealing to us who Jesus is. And once the Jewish religious leaders hear Jesus' testimony, they reach their conclusion. As we'll see, see when we study chapter 23 in a, a few weeks, should the, should the Lord tarry, this means that Jesus must die. The plain 
fact of the matter is that they've believed this for a long time. They believe that Jesus had to die. Luke has been careful to chronicle this fact in his gospel. We see in chapter 19, verses 47 and 40, that they had already reached their conclusion. Luke chapter 19, verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the city were seeking to destroy him. Consider Luke chapter 20, verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. And they're right at the outset of chapter 22. We read this in verse 2. If you flip over, you see the beginning of chapter 22, verse 2. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it fascinating that these guys can't find a way to put Jesus to death. They can't figure out how they are going to corner him and trap him and get him to confess something that's worthy of death. Jesus, we see, has to help them. Uh, that's because Jesus, as he said in John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Do you hear that word authority from the Gospel of John? That is what this scene is all about. Jesus is disclosing. He is helping his interrogators to discover all that he has. That he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. They provoke him, but he provides them with the answer that they need to accomplish their will and God's will. They demand that he tell them that he is the Christ. And notice how Jesus responds. Jesus responds by identifying their unbelief. What does it matter if he tells them? They wouldn't believe him anyway. How often do we hear this excuse today? You know, I, I, I would believe in Jesus if he were right here in front of me. Would you really? Uh, what makes you think that you would? You know, Jesus performed miracles among his own people and they did not believe him. Your historical distance, your spatial distance from Jesus does not really matter. I think when it comes to this question, you do not believe because you do not want to believe. You do not believe because you want your will and not God's will. And friend, it is time to lay your will down. It is time to stop turning a deaf ear to the word of God. It is time to bring your willful blindness to an end. Stop trying to hide your face from Jesus. You know you've been making excuses for why you won't give yourself up to him. The problem is not that Jesus has not made himself plain to you or that he hasn't revealed himself to you. He has in God's word. So believe. Just as it is useless for Jesus to answer them, verse 67 so it is useless for Jesus to ask them any questions. See that in verse 68. The Jewish religious leaders were not interested in an honest dialogue. Friends, the lack of honest dialogue has been around for a long, long time. We feel like we're experiencing a lack of honest dialogue in our culture today, but this has been around for a long, long time. We're not experiencing anything new here in our day and age. What do you do in that situation? Well, I think that you do what Jesus does. You just go ahead and you lay out the truth and leave that to the Lord. And Christian, I think that we must ask ourselves, are, are we willing to engage in honest dialogue, in honest conversations? Brothers and sisters, I promise you this. Biblical Christianity will withstand the sharpest criticism because it's true. God is not a liar. He is true. Jesus had been asked if he was the Christ. By that, that means the, the messianic king that the Old Testament promised. Would Jesus be the anointed one who would reign over David's house as king forever? Look at Jesus' answer there in verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus here identifies himself as the Son of Man. Uh, this title is a clear reference to the coming messianic king in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, 
verses 13 to 14, we're given a vision of the coming Son of Man. There we read this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I am the Son of Man. Jesus This has been one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself in the book of Luke. He has used it some two dozen times in this gospel. But it's only in this context concerning his messianic identity, this question about the Christ, when Jesus discloses that he is the Son of Man, that these Jewish religious leaders finally discover that Jesus really does think that he is the Messiah. Their question in verse 70 is is almost one of disbelief. They asked then, are are you then the Son of God? Now, I think that Jesus' reply ought to be read as a demand. The the you say in the original language, in the Greek, is emphatic. So I think we ought to read, read it like this. Are you the Son of God then? You say that I am. You say that I am the Son of God. You say that I am the Son of God because it is true. That's why they respond, well, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. See, these men finally discover who Jesus is. He is the beloved Son of God. This is the discovery about Jesus that Luke has been wanting us to make from the very beginning of his gospel. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 to 35, concerning Jesus' birth, we read. Listen to it for sonship language. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Keep going in that section. We'll go on to Luke 3, verse 22, concerning His baptism. And the Holy Spirit descended on Him in the bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Luke chapter 4, verse 3, concerning his his, His first temptation in the wilderness. The devil said to Him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Luke chapter 4, verse 9, concerning his third temptation in the wilderness. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Luke chapter 9, verse 35, concerning his transfiguration. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Friends, will you say this about Jesus Christ? That he is the promised one who stood in the Garden of Gethsemane for you to undo what Adam did. When God had created the world and all that is in it, He placed the first man and the first woman in the Garden of Eden. It was a paradise. It was a garden filled with light and life. And Adam and Eve had all that they could have ever wanted. And God gave them one small command. They were not to eat of one tree. They could eat from every other tree in the Garden of Eden except that one. The Lord God told Adam that if he disobeyed, if he chose his own will over God's will, that his sin would lead to death. Sadly, that's precisely what Adam did. He stood in that perfect and pristine garden of God and he said, Not God's will, but mine be done. Adam sinned against God. And just like Adam, we have all followed in his way. We too have sinned. And the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Deep down in our hearts, we all know that this is true too. Adam's sin led to death. The wages of sin is death. We all deserve to face God's eternal punishment for our sin in hell. But the good news of the Bible is this, that Jesus came to rescue us from our sin. Thousands of years later, God sent His one and only most beloved Son. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And He lived the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Where Adam stood in a garden that was filled with light and life, Jesus stood in a garden and in a world that was filled with darkness and death. 
And under the weight of the sin of the world, he fell to his knees and he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, the perfect, sinless, righteous son of God, revealed himself and went to the cross. And on the cross, he drank the cup of God's wrath. He died bearing the punishment for the sins of all of those who had ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in him. And three days after his death, God the Father vindicated him and raised him from the dead. In Romans chapter 1 verse 4, the Apostle Paul tells us that his resurrection from the dead was the declaration, was God's declaration that he was the Son of God. Jesus has said it. God the Father has said it. And you should say it. Now Jesus, he calls all of us to turn from our sin and to believe in him. To confess that he is God's son and our savior. That he lived for us the life that we have not lived. That he died for us the death that our sins deserve. And that he was raised from the grave for us. So that we might be accepted as righteous in God's sight. For all of those who turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus. Jesus promises his people that they will enter into a new garden. A heavenly garden in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh friend, I urge you to come to Jesus now in faith. To turn from your sin and to believe in him. And if you want to think more about what it means to believe, to trust and be saved by Jesus, please do find me at the door after the service. Speak with a friend or family member you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important you can think about than what it means to discover Jesus in faith. To discover who he has disclosed himself to be. Well, we should conclude. We began our uh, time in God's word by considering the fact that there is a radical an essential difference between knowing God and knowing about God. Do you know God? Has He made Himself known? All those who know God, all those to whom God has made Himself known, confess that Jesus is His Son. We confess that He drank the cup of God's wrath for us, thereby serving as a substitute and sacrifice for sin. We confess that he was delivered up for our transgressions. We confess that sometimes to our shame, we have denied him. And we are grieved and never want to do it again. We confess that while others may deride Jesus and his teaching, we hold to it and treasure it. And we confess that we have no other hope but him. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.